We live in a time where masculinity is shamed and men don't know what it means to be a man. As a pastor and counselor, I've spent the better part of my life equipping and training others. My goal with this show is to translate my hard-earned experience into tools and tactics to help you become stronger as a man. This is the Brave Co. Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Valentin. Hey guys, this week's episode is from my time in Taiwan. Some of these episodes are going to be translated, so you'll have to hear the back and forth. But listen, I love the content so much. I love my time in Taiwan that I thought this would really bless you. So hopefully you enjoy it. Well, I'm really excited to be here tonight. Um, this has been such a fun week to be with everyone. I'm so excited for what God is doing in Taiwan. I think it's incredible. Tonight, I want to talk about courage, disempowering fear, and winning the war within. When I think about courage, I often think about William Wallace on the battlefield. Do you guys know who William Wallace is? They don't, huh? <laughs> did you translate it good? I did. <laughs> Braveheart. Do you guys know Braveheart? I think about William Wallace, or I think about Jonathan in his armor bearer taking on a whole nation of armies. When I think about courage, I think about uh, David and his mighty men able to take on uh, a lion on, on a snowy day with just a club. Rarely, when I think about courage, do I think about what courage really is. See, when I show up at home and I connect with my wife emotionally and I show her where I'm really at, how many know that that's courage? We're called to the darkest places of this world. We talked about it last night. And often we think about the darkest places of this world and we think of, of places in Africa. Or maybe there's some places in Taiwan that are really dark. But I want to propose to you that the darkest places in this world actually lives inside of people. It's often what people are going through. I mean, it really is. It's, it's not that it doesn't take courage to win a, a fight on a battlefield. It does. But it also takes the same kind of courage to show up in your own life, doesn't it? It takes the same type of courage to show up for somebody else in their hard place. See, we were all born into a war. And we often work really hard to dodge all of the punches to make sure that we don't get hit. But we've been called to be on the front lines in the battlefield. And that's exactly why we spent three days doing what we're doing. To jump into the front lines, into the battlefield of people's lives. But that takes real courage. It takes real courage to show up for yourself. I want to read um, just e Ephesians 6. I love Ephesians 6. It is such an incredible picture of what we need to do to prepare for war. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand the, the wares of the enemy. I love as it goes through the different portions of this scripture, it talks about our breastplate of righteousness. It talks about the shield of the faith. It talks about the sword of the spirit. 
It talks about our feet being protected. Have you ever stopped to think about what's on your back? Isn't it interesting that there's no armor on your back? It's because they forgot to write about it in the Bible. No, I'm just kidding. It's because we were never meant to retreat. You were never meant to turn and run. And your rear guard is God. Isn't that awesome? See, what the enemy wants to make you feel is he wants to make you feel that your life is insignificant. He wants to make you feel that you can't make a difference. He wants you to make, he wants to make you feel like what you're going through is beyond what you can actually handle. He wants to make you feel that the tools that you have that, that you're not good enough to actually really help somebody. He, he's trying to make you feel that you don't have what it takes. You should give up. You should turn around and run. But he's only trying to do that because he's afraid of you. He's only trying to do that. He, he's only trying to do that because he knows who God's created you to be. See, our number one strongest instinct is our instinct to survive. Did you guys know that? Your strongest instinct is your instinct to survive. It's why we actually like bad news. How many news stations in Taipei tell good news? How many? How many of you love bad news? Anybody love bad news? How many of you like good news? How many of you would rather watch good news than bad news? Then why isn't every news channel a good news channel? You'd think it'd be so much better, don't you? But see, our instinct as human beings says good news doesn't actually help us to survive. See, thousands of years ago, this survival instinct is what helped us to be aware of all the dangers that were around us. Could you imagine walking really carelessly through the jungle? It's like, huh? Hey, Mr. Lion. Oh, look, there's a hyena. Uh, don't worry about the snakes. Not really a big deal. See, that instinct is actually what got us here today. Be cautious, be concerned, be worried about everything. The problem with our instinct to survive is that we often live really fear-based lives trapped inside of our fear. See, when the news comes on and the news person is telling you about all the things that might go wrong, unconsciously, biologically, you say, oh, this is really helpful information for, for what I need to prepare for. This is helping me survive. And we, we just eat it up. And, and so we go back to the news. We go back to these bad sources that don't actually offer any life because unconsciously, instinctively, we believe this is helping us. When the pandemic first hit, uh, I spent the first two weeks watching the news, trying to get really informed on what was happening. Oh man, I was so informed. I was terrified. I was so informed. The enemy was massive. And you know what I realized? I realized I was so informed. I wasn't sleeping at night. I started to realize like, this isn't actually helping me. And so I had to put limits. I had to set boundaries around what I was watching, what, what I was ingesting. Because instead of seeing the possibilities, instead of seeing how God see, sees, I begin to see how the enemy sees. And once you get in the mindset of you being really small and the enemy being really big, it's really hard to walk with courage, isn't it? 
I want to give you a couple keys to winning the war that goes on inside of us. Step number one, how you see the battle that you're in determines the outcome. I remember uh, when I was a young kid, I used to play soccer for years. I loved it. And for a really long time, my dad was our coach, which had its upsides and its downsides for sure. Could you imagine my dad being your coach? You can imagine my dad being your coach. But what would happen is in practice, in warm-ups, getting ready for the game, our team would be over here kicking goals and the other team would be warming up at the same time. I don't know why this always happens, but when I would look over at the other team, they were like six foot five and 35 years old. I'm 12 years old. And I remember being so discouraged. I would just be so down. And my dad would say, son, you have already lost and the game hasn't even started. You've already lost and we haven't even started the game. Do you guys remember the Israelites, the story of the Israelites? The Israelites spend 400 years in bondage and finally God rescues them from their bondage. And the Israelites go through all this crazy wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They finally, after 40 years, get to the promised land and they send 12 spies into the promised land to check it out. Now, when the spies came back, 10 of the spies had one story and two of the spies had a completely different story. See, 10 spies had this story. They said, we, they said, there's giants in the land. There's these massive giants in the land. And we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. You know, what's really interesting about that is it's not like the spies went and talked to the giants and were like, hey, do I look like a grasshopper to you? But that was their story. Their story was, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And two of the spies, they were carrying fruit from the land. And they said, look, this is what God has promised us. This is what God has told us about for years. This is our promise. And the Israelites didn't actually go into the promised land. They had to wait for a whole entire generation to die before they could go into the promised land. Do you know what was wrong with the Israelites? See, they spent 400 years seeing themselves as insignificant, as weak, as slaves. 400 years of seeing themselves as grasshoppers in the enemy's eyes. Even though when they escaped from Israel, God miraculously parted the sea and they went across on dry land. Even though when they wandered around in the wilderness 
For 40 years, their clothes never wore out. For 40 years, they had a fire by night and a cloud by day to protect them. God literally showed up and gave them manna and quail every single day. All these miraculous, incredible things were happening around them. But it didn't matter what happened around them. The only thing that mattered was what was happening inside of them. You know what God was trying to do by keeping them in the wilderness for 40 years? He was trying to get Egypt out of the Israelites. He was trying to get their old way of thinking out of them. See, because you could take the Israelites out of Egypt, but they didn't get Egypt out of themselves. See, they never even fought one giant and they had already lost the battle. Man, I hope you guys are getting this. That's a generational curse. It shuts you off from the promise that God has for you. You know, what's really interesting about the Israelites is that when they finally went into the promised land, after the older generation died off, they fought all kinds of enemies, but they never actually fought the giants. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. And that power and that principality wants you to see yourself as insignificant. Number two, the second step to winning the war that goes on inside of us is to not give up. Everybody say, don't give up. We read this yesterday, but it's James 1. James 1 is my life verse. I love James 1 because James 1 says, there's no way that you can lose if you keep going forward. It says, consider it pure joy or hilarious laughter when you encounter various trials in your life. For the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And when perseverance runs its course in your life, you will lack nothing. Anybody going through a hard time? God's about to upgrade your life. Anybody wish it was easier? God's building you. He's not breaking you down. Anybody feel like giving up? You're being brought to a place where you don't lack anything. You say, is God causing this? No, it doesn't matter. He has a promise for you. The promise is whatever you're going through, it's making you stronger. It's making you beautiful. It's bringing you to a place where you don't lack. See, when you get in a hard time, if you start down the road of, why is this happening to me? I'm not going to be okay. I don't think I'm going to make it. You understand that you are already starting to, to decide what your future is going to be. But when you start to go, this is going to work out for my best interest. God's building me. The enemy won't get to steal from me. You begin to shift the momentum in your life. One of my other favorite verses is Philippians 4. I love Philippians 4. James 1 and Philippians 4 are these dynamic duos for our life. I'm just going to paraphrase it. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness and kindness be evident to all the Lord is near. If you need anything, feel free to let God know. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. That scripture, it's so easy to read that scripture 
and to skip ahead and just be like, oh, that's really nice. But God just offered you one of the greatest exchanges you will ever get. He said, I will exchange you your anxiety, your best attempt at peace for the real peace that surpasses all understanding. This isn't peace that you've manufactured in your mind. This is peace that you don't even understand. How many of you would like to exchange your best attempt at peace for a peace that surpasses your understanding? I remember I was going through um, my divorce. In the first week, I had so much anxiety. This was right before my wife left. I'd wake up at like five in the morning. I wasn't sleeping very well. And I'd wake up just full of anxiety. And so I'd go on these long walks. And I remember being on one of these walks and I would just pray for a week over and over again, like, God, I need you to give me a peace that's beyond my circumstance. And I could remember to this day, I can remember exactly where I was at. I remember what the sun uh, looked like outside. And I remember I took one more step and literally all the anxiety that I was carrying went away. It literally left me. I went through the rest of that season in my life without any anxiety. I got a great exchange. My best attempt at peace for this peace that I didn't even understand. I know what you guys are thinking. You're thinking, wait, didn't you go through a nervous breakdown afterwards and have a lot of anxiety? I did. And that's where I learned the second part of this. Because I have a PhD in anxiety. I'm talking about destroying some of the darkest places on the planet. See, what I realized in my nervous breakdown, it's such a bummer because I didn't figure it out for like nine years. Honestly, I didn't figure this out till nine years after my nervous breakdown. This is, this is the best tool that I use regularly. What I realized is that if I do what Philippians 4 talks about, my anxiety goes to a zero. It seems so Christian churchy. See, what would happen is my brain would get fixated on all the things that might go wrong, that might happen. My brain would get stuck in that. I'm not going to go into it a ton, but I found out uh, that I have OCD, which shouldn't have been a surprise to me. But my brain would get fixated and stuck on what what might happen and what if and how come and and, and it gets stuck in this fear mode. Don't and I learned to recognize, oh, that's just my brain being stuck. And what I do is I dive into really crazy deep thankfulness, like ridiculous thankfulness, and everything shifts. My entire mindset shifts. They're like, oh, that's nice. A lifetime of anxiety ended in my life because I learned this one tool. I was on medication for 12 years because I didn't know how to solve this problem. And I learned this tool that the Bible has. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness and kindness be evident to all. God's near. If you need anything, go ahead and let me know. And the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind. 
It goes on to say, if anything's lovely, holy, pure, awesome, praiseworthy, really fun, think about these things. And the God of peace, which surpasses all understanding, he will guard your heart and your mind. See, we get in these really tough places and your brain begins to go, this isn't going to work out good. There's danger here. You have to be careful. Things are getting worse. It's hard to breathe. Oh, it's getting harder to breathe. Don't say it's hard to breathe. Now you're thinking about it's hard to breathe. It's even harder to breathe. And God goes, yeah, how about, how about if we just think my thoughts? How about if, if we just do this thing where we look at what's holy. We look at what's pure. We look at what's beautiful. We look at what's lovely. How about if you meditate on those things and literally renew your mind? Guys, that is the mindset of a warrior. That's the mindset of a dangerous person. That's the mindset of somebody that cannot be defeated. That's the mindset of somebody who's ready to go into battle. That's how we persevere for a really long time is we're not thinking about how bad it's going. We're thinking about how good God is, what he's going to do, what's really, really going to happen out of all of this. See, we have to change the way that we see ourselves. Wow. That's the third step. You have to change the way you see yourself. You have to change the way that you see yourself. Gideon was the smallest man from the smallest tribe, and his family was about to be overrun by, the, by his enemies. And you know where Gideon was? Gideon was in the promised land. This is years after the Israelites had taken and occupied this land of promise. Gideon's in the promised land and he's angry because his family, his people keep getting run over and pillaged by the enemy. And an angel appears to Gideon and says, basically says, Gideon, You are the answer to your prayer. See, Gideon was saying, God, where are the miracles of our forefather? And God goes, oh, funny you should ask. That's you. He goes, "Uh, yeah, no, I think you got the wrong guy. That guy's two doors down. He's really tall and handsome. He's got big muscles. He says, I'm the smallest guy from the smallest tribe. I'm not the guy you're looking for. And God gives out his measuring tape and he goes, uh, no, yeah, you're good. That's it. So Gideon gets this really big army together to fight against the Midianites and the Hittites and the Perizzites that are coming against him. And God goes, mm, this is a this is a nice big bunch of people you got here, Gideon. I think you might have too many. Gideon's like, uh, what are you talking about, God? There's so many of the enemy. It said that, the, that they, they were like grains of sand on the sea. And God goes, yeah. How about if you tell anybody who's afraid to go home that they can go, or afraid that they can go home? So he says, Anybody that's afraid, God says you can go home. Well, like it, his, there goes his army. God's like, great, we got rid of all the cowards. So then he says, yeah, we still got a problem. You got too many guys out there, Gideon. Gideon's like, oh, man. God says, yeah, you need to sort them out. So just bring them to the water, and 
Whoever laps like a dog, sort them out from the ones that drink from their hands. Gideon's left with 300 guys. 300 guys. You guys ever see the movie 300? I'm not recommending that you see it. I'm just saying maybe if you did see it, those weren't the real 300. Gideon's guys were the real 300. God visits Gideon in the camp before the war starts. And he says, hey, if you're scared, you should go to the enemy's camp and see what they're saying about you. So Gideon goes over to the enemy's camp and he's listening. And there's a guy that had a dream. And in the dream, Gideon and the army completely wiped out their army. And he goes, surely that's about to happen to us. See, Gideon and his army of 300 with a jar in one hand and a torch in the other hand completely annihilated the enemy. They didn't even have weapons. They had a jar and a torch. Do you see 300 guys running at you with jars and torches? Do you go, oh my gosh. Now you go, there's a party coming. We're all going to have fun. See, it's not about what you have. It's about what he has. But he can't use what you have until you see you through him. He can't use what you have until you decide that what the little that you have is enough. God's not looking for talented people. He's looking for willing people. He's got all the talent. You look all through the Bible is stories of these outliers, these people that were insignificant and weak that changed history. And they defied the odds because they had courage. They had courage to face the battle that was inside of them. Daniel in the Bible served under some of the most wicked men to ever walk the planet. Daniel outlived four kings. Daniel changed history. You look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah helped his people rebuild walls that had been torn down for a century. Nehemiah decided he was not insignificant. See, when Sambalat and Tobiah, when the enemy accused Nehemiah, Nehemiah said, I'm doing a good work for the Lord. I'm, I'm not doing my work. I'm doing a good work for the Lord. Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls and, and the, the, the enemy, Sambala and Tobiah, were heckling him. And they said, even if a fox jumps on your wall, it's just going to get broken down. Nehemiah says, I'm not building your wall. I'm building God's wall. See, you have a, Sambala, a Sambala and Tobiah that's looking at your life, what you're rebuilding. It's looking at your inheritance and it's saying, it's insignificant, you should stop trying. You're too old, it's already too late. Your parents are nobodies. You weren't loved enough. See, Nehemiah refused to listen to the enemy. He refused to go down there. He just kept saying, I'm doing God's work. Tonight, I just felt like, I wanted to commission you guys, and even those of you that are watching online, into God's work. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the Brave Co. Podcast. If you like this podcast, would you please rate it, review it, 
leave us a great comment. And if you like this episode in particular, share it with your friends and family. That helps us to spread the word. Guys, stay brave. We'll see you next week.